All right, welcome everyone to Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the mental fitness practices and stories of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. This episode is part of the Founder Series, where I explore the mental fitness required for entrepreneurs and teams to thrive during the most demanding phases of building a business. Because when minds thrive, so do innovations, teams, and businesses. We all win. Today, we have a returning guest to the show, dear friend, someone that inspires me each day, Jerry Colonna, who is the founder and CEO of Reboot.io and is a certified professional coach drawing on his wide variety of experiences to help clients design a more conscious life and make needed changes to their careers to improve their performance and satisfaction. He established his coaching practice in 2007. Prior to this work, Jerry was a venture capitalist focused on investing in early stage technology related startups. Just a perfect person for this series, Jerry. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. And when you noted that I established my practice in 2007, the first thought that came in is, God, I'm old. <laughs> you're in your prime jerry come on now <laughs> i love it uh well you you've been on the show before and we've we've shared many messages back and forth so you have a, a good idea of at least the work that that i'm doing in this world and, and part of the backstory of this this docu-series um and having been on the show before we're still going to start the show off in the same way with the same question because i think it's important um to avoid job titles and whatnot and and I think the answer to this question evolves over time. So I'd be curious to see uh, when I listen back to the our first episode, who are you, Jerry? You know, like mm. right now, as you sit in front of uh, the screen, you know, who is Jerry today? Mm. Uh, well, you know, I think Jerry today is evolving. Um, and so... Um, you know, I think that the way I would answer that question uh, is by really tapping into the things that are important to me. And so I'll tell you a little story. I was talking on Sunday night with a friend of mine, someone I've known for 30 years. And uh, it had been a few months since we caught up. And we were talking about the future and talking about what I often refer to as slip sliding into elderhood. Mm. And uh, I just... I just went really quiet at one point. We were talking about the future, and I said, I just want to write, and I just want to coach, right? Yeah. I am I, I, really deeply fortunate to live on a 40-acre farm outside of Boulder, Colorado, with uh, the woman who is the love of my life, who is an extraordinary painter and coach in her own right, my co-founder, Ali Schultz. And... Um, we spend so much of our time, she's also a horsewoman, and we spend so much of, each, uh, of our days in orbit with each other. Mm, okay. And uh, who I am is a man dedicated to uh, that inquiry process that, that is a grounded experience um, and a man who's dedicated to heart connection. Uh, whether it's with my now adult children or with someone like Allie or with my clients or with new friends or old friends. Um, that really defines me more than anything else, more than what it is that I do. Sure. 
So do you feel, do you feel you're in an editing stage of life? You know, I, I, I asked that question just thinking when you said, you know, all I want to do is write and coach. So I suspect no, there's no. other things around there. <laughs> uh, you mean, am I pruning? By, is that Correct. what you mean by editing? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I, I often describe this period of my life as fruition. Um, I feel like I'm harvesting. I feel like I'm in the fall of my life. Um, and uh, I am reaping, in the original term, the original meaning of that word, reaping the benefit of a life of uh, really hard work. And so for me, when I say I'm writing and I'm coaching and I'm dedicated to heart connection, all three of those things are facets of the same diamond. Okay. It's a way of being. And uh, um, I think over the next 10 years, I'll turn 59 this year, over the next 10, 11 years, I can imagine myself dropping some activities, pruning some activities. But, um, but more than pruning, I feel like I'm harvesting. Okay. Beautiful language. I love it. I, I should I should have known better to expect this kind of language and these examples from from Jerry Colonna. It's beautiful. Mm. It's always so great chatting with you. I'd love to know because this you know this series we're going to jump into some specifics around founders, their their minds, and and you know where the pressure points are on on that business journey. And you've 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 been there yourself, obviously. You've you've also been on the other side of the investment um, or the the gatekeeper of financials, let's just say, or, or cash. Um, and what I'm trying to do with these conversations is understand, you know, for the big parties that are involved during during the the founding of a company, and as as founders are going through the various rounds of of investment like where we can all really come together and improve the likelihood of success for the company and the team, but also improve the likelihood of, of, of the mental health link to that. So it's not, you know, such a, such a pressure cooker kind of environment that I think we all know it is. And I mean, there's, there's some pretty good uh, uh, research done in terms of founders and entrepreneurs having some of the highest rates of of mental health conditions. And it's not surprising having been through it myself, but I would love to know since you're working directly with founders and um, at various stages in the business, like, what are you seeing? You know, where, I guess the first question, Jerry, is there, is there a particular phase of business or phase of a founder that you're working with, with, um, with your day-to-day -day coaching business? Um, I'll answer that last question quickly, but I'd rather move more quickly to a larger response to the premise and the structure. Okay. Sure. Um, there isn't, for me personally, there isn't a focus on a particular phase at this point in my coaching clients. So yes, I am a CEO of a coaching company yep. um, and we do have uh, employee coaches who work with people. And for the most part, we tend to work with first-time 
uh, CEOs early in their career. Okay. Uh, as a senior coach, I'm kind of all over the place. I sure. work with people at all stages. Um, I want to take it back a little bit to the to the structure, and I want to I want to acknowledge and note that you know as we as we noted before, I've been coaching since 2007. I actually started in 2006 before I actually got trained. But prior to that, I was an investor, and I began investing in 1995. Um, late 1994, 1995. So I've been uh, in one form or another in the orbit of the pathologically optimistic entrepreneurs for over 30 years. Yeah, 30 years or so. Okay. So if we sort of take a step back and, and say, and, and as an investor, you know, Mark, a lot of the stuff that you see me as now, I was before. I just didn't have the skills. I had the same temperament. I just didn't have the same skills. So in a sense, I've been observing um, the personalities that you're referring to for a long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I think it's really important to understand is we often focus on founders. You know, you're doing it in this series. Um, KPMG is doing it in their support mechanism. That's all beautiful. But let's not forget that founders are not as unique as we often think of them are. Or more specifically, when it comes to mental health, there are things that they do that exacerbate the normal tendencies that we have um, that afflict us all, not just those of us who identify as founders. Okay. And I'm going to give you an example of that, and it's actually embedded in the question or the observation that you were making. You were making, wisely, a connection between, say, the individual leader, the founder's mental health, mental fitness. And I'm, I think I'm going to reflect your language back to you. And I'm going to hold your feet to the fire a little bit. <laughs> the performance of the team. Does that resonate as yep. two things? Yep. Okay. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's where the problem begins. Okay. Okay. Because we are wrapped around the axle from childhood. We are socialized to think of our own sense of self-worth as connected in some way or, or rooted in the output, in the performance. Okay. You see what mm -hmm. I'm, I'm oh, going I told, Yeah, totally. Okay. So... There's a, there's a basic supposition behind the observation that you're making, which is that, the, that this work is really important because it's, quote, going to improve the performance of the people, which is really code word for improving the performance of the business, which is really code word for making money. Yes. Okay. There's a and reason I, for that, but I want you to finish. Okay. <laughs> There is a treadmill that we get put on when we're children, which is that we should learn in order to get an A, which is that we should grow in order to get our parents' approval, is that we should be good so that we end up in heaven. Okay? Yeah. yeah. And what's lost in that entire construct 
is that building a team of folks who are dedicated to their own development is not selfish and self-indulgent. It's the highest and best expression of love manifested as work, to badly misquote Rumi. So I'm going to just push back on that and say there is no other reason to focus on your mental fitness than the fact is it's the right and ethical thing to do. Yeah. So then how do we have, because this is where this comes from, and it's, it's so interesting what you reflect back, because even in my own personal work with, with teams, I'm starting to notice a difference between like, even five years ago would have been, well, how do we improve retention, turnover, things like that. And now it's a little bit more the, the connections being made that a healthy mind is probably a good thing for all involved. Let's, you know, it's hard to argue that, but I still find, and and obviously you caught me in performance style language, but how do we have the conversations with investors and so forth that I mean, the business model is to invest in a certain amount of, of organizations that are going to turn, uh, you know, that are going to be lucrative for their portfolio. I guess that's what I'd love to unpack in, in the conversations. How do we, how do we come at it in a, in a way that we can open the door for conversation? So um, I appreciate the effort. You know, it reminds me in a sense, too, of the efforts around our you know, I identified as a white, cisgendered, straight male. So I'm going to speak from that social location. And, and it reminds me of the language that we often use around inclusivity, which is inclusivity is really great for improving the productivity of your team because you have a diverse workforce. Okay? That's a perverse logic. Yeah. Okay? Uh, creating systemic belonging within organizations is a moral imperative regardless. Creating mentally fit work environments is a moral imperative. It is our ethical responsibility, especially for those of us who hold power. Okay. Okay. So, just what just what I did there, you're feeling it. Just by yeah. changing the structure and the and the reframe here, we start to reveal something that is a, a false dichotomy. And I hear it all the time. Jerry, what if I go to my investors and I say, I'm gonna give everybody a day off, you know, a mental health day every month, and they're gonna look at the productivity numbers and they're da, 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 and they're right that they feel that pressure. But the dichotomy that gets set up there is a false dichotomy. It's the dichotomy between work and life. Yeah. Okay? If we take a step back, so you asked a really irrelevant question. Well, how do we present this? What's the stance? Okay? And the stance that I often use goes like this. I don't know if we're recording video, but I'm holding up a mug. Okay? And I point to the mug and I say, this is a container. The T inside is my content. Container without content is meaningless. Content 
without container is useless. The productivity, the financial performance of your business is the container. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The dichotomy, that dichotomous thinking is, is an expression of the socialization that we have as children. I do this in order to do this. The opportunity is to say this is at both end. It's a harder challenge. But I think mm -hmm. those of us who have power and privilege have a responsibility to create exquisitely well-run containers that actually have content that has meaning. It reminds me, and I wonder if I'm drawing the right conclusion here, but it reminds me when I first started to speak about journaling and, and doing my best to help people come to a, a journaling practice, right? Because as you, as you know, it's still a very foreign practice to, to a lot of people, even though it's been around since the beginning of time. And what I was always up against was this preconceived notion of, oh, you're speaking about the 12-year-old girl writing in her diary about the boy at school type thing, which, you know, I'd, I'd always respond to and say, not that there's anything wrong with that, but not necessarily. That's, that's one, one audience I'm talking about slowing down asking great questions and, and prioritizing some stillness for our mind to think. And as that, that journey continued, I, I, I found myself shying away from the word journaling and try, like almost like taking little curveballs. And, you know, we're talking about reflection or we're talking about a, a thought process. Yeah. Like all of this, but mm -hmm. basically always skirting around until someone uh, by the name of Johnny Pollard, uh, out of New York said, you know what, just own that word. That's what mm. you're talking about. Like, that's what it is. And mm. uh, it, it, that comes up. And it, like I said, I, I'm not sure if I'm drawing, the, you know, uh, a parallel here, but it's almost like we, we know what we need to be talking about in this space. Let's mm -hmm. not skirt around that and come in with this angle of, of financials or performance. Let's just stick to the message, talk to the right people, and, you know, as a collective, hopefully we can make, you know, make some good progress. And, and the ones that completely don't understand it or um, are repelled by that language, for example, it's just not the right time yet. Is that, is that, is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, as usual, I push it a little bit further, though. Of course. Um, That's why you're you here, know. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, you know, Mark, you, you know what you're getting when you invite me on a show. <laughs> So um, I want to acknowledge the discomfort that you felt and even the language you used, a 12-year-old girl's diary. And I'm imagining you as a, as a young boy trying to identify or, or assert your identity of how you see yourself and trying to navigate um, the landmines uh, that we lay for children mm -hmm. around identity, around um, beingness, who am I really? And, and, and so then you, you, in your important work with people in which you so wonderfully help people, you're trying to share with them something that has actually helped you, which is this experience of self-reflective journaling. 
so that you you can share with them with that kind of evangelical zeal of what it has meant for you. But what do you run up against? You run up against the shame. Yes. And then your friend has to say to you, own that word. Okay. Now, I want to just, I want to go back to the construct, the socialization construct that says matters of the heart belong only to one group of people who identify in one gender. What fucking bullshit. (laughs) Okay. You want to understand why there's violence in the world? My, my friend, our, our, our inspiring uh, teacher, Parker Palmer, says that violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. Do you want to understand why so many men are violent? Well, because we teach children, boys, that matters of the heart belong to a different group of people. What fucking utter nonsense And the last thing I'll say is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature is a journal called The Confessions of St. Augustine. Okay. Okay? I mean, come on. Can't we get past that kind of simplistic, socially limiting structure? That patriarchal structure hurts little Boys. Yeah. Stop. And by the way, I'm from Brooklyn. You got a problem with that? You, I'll take you up. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <get> violent. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. I first wanted to say thanks for being here, and I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to let you know if you're interested, I just launched the Better Questions newsletter designed to provide you with a consistent 15-minute opportunity to pause and think because a pause leads to clarity and operating with intention where we all win and thrive. The newsletter is short, simple, and practical, providing you with three quality reflective prompts and mental fitness twice a month. But as always, I'll adjust the frequency based on your feedback. Never forget, at any point, you are always one question away from a completely different life or outcome. You can sign up over at BehindTheHuman.com, which will also give you a free preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. BehindTheHuman.com. Now back to the show. So where do we go from here, Jerry? You know, like, you, you know what this, this series is all about and, and what we're trying to do with it. Yeah, let, let, let's redefine business success so that it includes mental fitness for every participant in the organization. Yeah. It's not enough to generate a return on, on investment. It's not enough to take a dollar and turn it to two, three, or four. But our jobs as leaders is to create platforms where brilliant people, however they express themselves in the world, get to do the best work of their lives so that they go home at night and they feel better, even though they're tired, they feel better about themselves than they did in the morning. Mm. And it's all possible. 
It's completely possible. The notion that these things are in opposition, right? Or, you know, for example, well, if I did that, somehow my EBITDA line is going to shrink. Is again, more utter nonsense. There, you know, how many conscious business case studies do we have to show before people understand that there's absolutely zero correlation between toxic work cultures and higher financial return on investment. That's so true, right? I mean, do we, we don't or, need or let more. Let me be more specific. Yeah. There's no causation. There may be correlation, but there's no causation. You don't have to be a jerk to produce return on investment. And in a similar fashion, just because you're nice and in a healthy work culture, doesn't mean you're going to produce a good return on investment. That's a good point. Right? The leader's job, our founder's job, is to focus on content and container simultaneously. And yes, that's hard. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I I can only share, reflect back my experience and having started, uh, it was my experience in, in, in the entrepreneurial world, starting one of these, these first guided journaling apps at the time. And, you know, a bit of that backstory, we reached a ton of people and ultimately financially the business failed, um, but it succeeded. And I would say probably 80 plus percent other areas. And so the reason you and I are speaking, so I, I, I'm incredibly grateful, but I, I just, I've noticed from the from that project in that stage of my life and then also then launching the book how different those experiences were i mean the the tech startup was very much as you probably would imagine conversions and you know do we have enough people coming like all the business metrics and i just from i i don't know this is kind of where, where i'm trying to go i don't remember what flipped in in my mind when launching the book and thinking, of course, I want as many people to experience the 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 practices because I do really believe in the work, but I'm not obsessing over hitting the lists or, mm. you know, the first launch week. I'm doing everything possible to just be present mm. while this book comes out to the world. So, could, so I can, you know, basically see, okay, well, this is the next path forward or these are the opportunities that make mm. sense. Mm. And, but, you know, I had to go down that that journey and, and, and those journeys are all different, I would imagine, for, for everyone. So when you're working with with founders and leaders, especially, you know, in the, in the topic that we're speaking about, how do you help, it, you know, people disconnect some of the things that we've been talking about, like this kind of the stereotypical measures of success, or how do you help them balance well, those pressures? Uh- I'll answer the question this way by asking you more questions. When you did the tech startup, the the guided journaling app, um, the first question I would ask is more context. Did you self-fund or did you raise money from outside? Including self-funded. You self-funded. Yeah. We were trying to raise money from the outside. How, How did it feel when you failed to raise money from the outside? Go back in time. Woo, time machine. How did it feel? Like a defeat, you know. I remember it feeling there's probably some inadequacy of some sort. 
I had always, on my side at least, I had always, before that, I was leaving, you know, a decade-long corporate career that had I had excelled at. Which means that you had some financial stability beforehand. Correct. But also, some, you know, experience and track record that if I put this level of work in, I can expect this return. Uh, and in this case... And performance. Correct. Keep going. Yeah. And in this case, I put a hell of a lot of work and potentially even more work into it and still wasn't seeing the results, you know, that, that I was seeking. They showed up in other areas, but not in that specific area. How personally did you take, uh, the failure to raise, to raise money? That straight to the heart because it brings me back to, it's not just because this was a big decision on, on what, what ultimately led to the decision to shut that app down and, and, and shut the business down. It wasn't just a, you know, personal failure, but there was also a heaviness of, I'm not talking about a, a parking app. We're talking about people's journals and there, there was a community there, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that had their their journals within our, our product and service. And there was a, there was a feeling of letting them down as well. Yeah. So hold, hold on to the memory of that because we're going to, we're going to feel our way back into the answer to your question. I want you to recall, um, William James, the father of American psychology, the philosopher in the 19th century said, it is not failure that annihilates us. It is when we attach a sense of self and self-esteem to accomplishment of the goal and then fail to achieve the goal that we are annihilated. Mm -hmm. And that little parenthetical phrase, when we attach our sense of self and self-esteem to accomplishment of the goal, right? It's no accident that James was fascinated by Buddhism. Yeah. Okay, because in Buddhism, what we learn is that craving, attachment is the source of suffering. So now let's fast forward. Ooh, time machine. You're launching this fabulous book. You pour your heart and soul into it. But the experience that you're having, whether or not it's a bestseller, is different. You want something to happen. You want to change lives. You want to impact lives the way you did with the journaling app. You want to be that evangelist for a mentally fit life. But you have a four and a half month old. What's her name? His name, Jasper. Jasper. When Jasper, because now he's smiling, when Jasper looks up, yeah, does he give a rat's ass on the number of books you've sold? Absolutely not. Right? He you cares asked that me, I'm present there. You asked me what kind of, who is the human behind, right? Okay. We turn this around. It's like all of a sudden there's a mark now. Who knows he is loved? Who knows who he loves? He knows that he has a mission in life, which is to keep those rugrats safe, warm, Mm -hmm. and happy. And you know 
that that matters more than the affirmation and accolades that come from having a million people say, thank you for teaching me about journaling. It's not to say that that work isn't important. It's, 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 it's where does the source of our sense of self-esteem come from? It comes from a sense of belonging. When, it, when it's rooted in that, we can withstand the slings and arrows of life. Mm-hmm. That's what St. Augustine taught us. That's what every wisdom tradition I've ever encountered in humanity teaches us. I don't care what religion you call it. Yeah. Well, I kept coming to the point, same thing with just, it doesn't matter what religion or what, what teacher I was learning from or continue to learn from is that, I mean, the magic is in, is in, is in the right now. I mean, if you can source happiness and feel great in, in the presence of right now, I mean, everything else, it doesn't matter. Right? David, David White, the brilliant poet, has a poem that I adore called Self-Portrait, the first lines of which are, it doesn't matter to me if there's one God or many gods. I want to know if you know how to melt into the fierce center of your being. The last lines of which are, I have been told that in, the play, in that place, even the gods speak of God. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's what we're talking about is that fierce, fierce center of your being where the vagaries of your enterprise, the ups and downs of that particular roller coaster ride, they're important but they don't threaten your existence. They're not an existential threat to whether or not you feel loved, feel safe, or know that you belong. Mm -hmm. But it feels like they do when you're... Because that's the way we've been socialized. Exactly. Which I imagine, I'm curious, I'm curious how you what your entry points are then when working with, with whether it's founder or, or the team, because if I, if I bring myself back to that tech startup experience and, you know, we had a small team, mm-hmm. I mean, we were, we were doing everything possible, obviously mm-hmm. to, to get the mission, you know, fulfill the mission and, and, and help as many people as possible and create a business that's sustainable. And there's so much drive obviously with, with, for really for any entrepreneur to jump into what can be very scary, right? A scary world of, of, of going against the grain, I guess you could say, and, and creating a business and following a dream or whatever it is. How do you meet them? Where I'm going to borrow the question that's the opening prompt for your profile in my book, but how do you meet them, you know, where they're at or how do they meet life as it is, for mm-hmm. example? It's probably the the most profound question I've ever heard from you. I'm looking around for the sign. Um, 
I'm going to run over and grab something. Yeah. I want to show it to you. I'll be right back. So there's a section in my book in which I'm talking about the roller coaster ride that is life. And I have a line in there that says, life should come with a placard, a warning. And a reader sent me this. Warning, this ride, this is ride dark. is dark and scary. Okay. The experience of being in the life is dark. It's hard. And the, the, the tools, a tool, for example, a mental fitness tool, whether it's meditation or journaling or just being honest with oneself are the ways to deal with the dark and scary ride that is life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, um, as I was saying before, we don't teach the ways of dealing with suffering. We teach the ways to avoid suffering. But the second noble truth is that the avoidance of suffering increases suffering. Powerful, Jerry. Very powerful. If, I mean, <laughs> as you mentioned, you said, I, I knew what I was getting into <laughs> inviting you on the show. So I'm completely, not that any of my episodes are scripted. As you know, I flow with, with the guests, but this is, I'm definitely flowing with you on this one. And, and, uh, and I love it. So I'm going to, the questions are coming as, as, as I'm being present with you. And like, if you, if you had to put all of your energy in one area for a series like this with the intent of, of helping, right. And intent of, of founders, teams, and everyone involved, um, I guess being content with where, where they're at on their journey and, and doing great work and, and waking up, like you said, happy and hitting the, the pillow at the end of the day, feeling gratitude and, and self-worth and all of that stuff. Where would you put your attention around the education, I guess? Or maybe I'm leading the witness here. Where would you, I guess, where would you put your attention? Well, I think that the first thing I would try to do is to stop the and it, and it, this is what the first thing I do today, and it's the first thing that we do in everything that we do at Reboot, whether it's our boot camps or our workshops, or whatever. The first thing I would do is level set around the normalcy, the normality of feeling like shit. Okay. And the reason that that we do that is that we in addition to not necessarily having the mental fitness tools to know how to deal with the everyday vagaries of life, we make the situation worse by thinking everybody else has it figured out and we're the only ones who don't. Mm -hmm. Right? So the first thing that anyone has to do is to make them smile and make them realize they're not alone that <clears throat> your series exists because the, the one or two individuals who might be listening to this right now aren't the only ones who need this. 
You needed it. I need it. We all need it. Mm. I we still need it. need it. You still need it. And that's normal. That's not your unique brokenness. Oh, look at me. I'm still broken. No, it's look at me. I'm still human. And in that shared hu universal human experience, there's connection. So just like me, you struggle. Just like me, you wonder about your self-worth. Just like me, you have self-doubt. Just like me, you have imposter syndrome. Just like me, you mask your anxiety with aggression. So let's just be human together. Yeah, that's a, that's a powerful line. Let's just be human together. Incredible. I mean, I swear I want to respect time because I mean we we could we could speak for for hours on this one, but I I also do want to provide. Uh, so I might switch gears a bit, but provide some practical mental fitness from your side that either you're using professionally or that you see helpful with your clients, mm -hmm. with the caveat of on this show at least we're not we don't promote prescriptions of practices it's really the intent is here are some other options some other ideas and then the everyone on the other side including myself can say you know what i never thought about that that would work well with my my routine and so forth and and i, I just i truly believe in that's when we can actually sustain these these practices when they're personalized right so Share away, Jerry, in terms of either for you personally or what you find, especially for, for, for founders and teams, just some starting points um, on the mental fitness side. Well, I'll, I'll set it up by saying this. I was, I was uh, raised a devout Catholic. And like a lot of Catholics, when I hit teenager, my teenage years, I sort of walked away. What turned my interest into spirituality, into an interest in religion and in, in, in Buddhism, was a simple teaching, non-dogmatic teaching, and I'm going to paraphrase the teaching from the Buddha, which was, if try these techniques. If they work for you, great. If they don't work for you, then let it go. Mm -hmm. And that's the phrasing I would answer your question with, first and foremost, try these. And if they work for you, great. If they don't work for you, let it go. Okay? Non-dogmatic. We've already spoken about journaling. I've been journaling every day since I was 13 years old. Yeah. I journal every day. I sit in meditation every day. I exercise five or six days a week. I don't know how I could withstand the vagaries of my life if I didn't do those things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but even more, Mark... I think I have a, especially as I've aged, I have a fierce commitment to residing at the center of my being. Okay. You know, maybe I've been a different guest. I don't know. I'm only, the, I'm only in my body. But I once was at a speaking engagement and I was online at, uh, to get some lemonade and I started commenting to, something, to somebody in front of me and they looked at me and they said, you sound like, you sound just like that guy on the podcast. 
And I said, well, I am that guy on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And, and the point is this, I strive very, very hard to be the same person mm -hmm. throughout my entire day. Now, that comes across as being present. That comes across as being authentic. I don't shoot for that. I don't aim for that. What I aim for is to not bullshit myself. Mm -hmm. And I show up. Sometimes I'm a mess. Sometimes I'm on fire. But I'm there. Now let's translate this very specifically into a practice. You show up with your team. You had a lousy night's sleep. The first thing you say to your team is, I had a lousy night's sleep. If I seem really cranky, it's because I had a lousy night's sleep. It's not because I want to fire you. I mean, it's, it, it, it sounds simplistic, but do you realize how radical that is? Mm -hmm. Because the leader's got this whole mishigas going on in their head. Well, if I show up and I'm uncertain and I don't know what I'm going to do, then they're going to think less of me. And then the team is like, I don't know. He wants to fire me every five minutes. I feel like I'm it's like, stop. Show up and be human. And make it safe for the human beings in your workplace to come in. Yeah. Well, and I was going to, I was going to say, I mean, and being human, there is an aspect of vulnerability there and, and realness, right? Like I think you've, you've obviously experienced this writing as well, but the thing that I remember the most about writing the book, just the editors constantly reminding me to keep going, keep being vulnerable. The more vulnerable you are, the more inviting, you know, uh, to the readers for them to go down that, that path. And it, it was challenging, but it, you know, it just, it makes me think like even remember my uh, part of a men's group, and uh, some job things had shifted and it was just, you know, basically financial stress and, and a big pivot point in, in my life. And I was with my son, it was just him, my wife, and my wife was away at the time. One of the guys in the group said, you know what, it's okay to tell your son that dad's having a bad day. Yes! Right? And I just thought I would have never, and, and I don't, I have a great relationship with my, with my father, it was just a different time. Yeah. Right. And it, he wasn't taught those things, but I never would have thought to just say that. Well, right? think about how liberating it would have been to you as a little boy. Yeah. No, you might have worried about him. Right. And so if the corollary, the, 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 the ad, adjunctive thing that I would say is dad's having a bad time, but I, but he feels really confident about getting through it. So mm -hmm. don't you worry and you don't have to do anything to fix me. Yeah. yeah. Remember before I said, we don't teach our children what to do with suffering. That's what you do with suffering. You <laughs> yeah. name it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by doing so, you give a tool to a child which says, oh, words. That's what human beings invented. Words and art mm -hmm. and music. That's what we're to do with suffering. We're to transform it into love, into action. Mm -hmm. And full circle with, you know, as, as valuable as that is, 
for little kids and as parents and, and so forth, right back full circle to the teams, right? Own that. That's right. That's you know, right. show up with that emotion. Uh, it's okay. And it just, it just fosters, it fosters a starting point. I think if you're, if, if you as a team and, and I put myself in that as well, uh, are not used to showing that, that level of vulnerability, it's the, you, you essentially answered the question that I've been dancing around the whole podcast is where do we start with education around this, this topic and this series. And I, you know, I'm leaving with a couple of reflections on just redefining, you know, how, what success is, you know, with our, with our organizations and, and bringing in some other elements other than just financials and showing up as who we actually are. Let me add to that one, one half a sentence. I would replace the word vulnerability with the word honesty. Mm. Yeah. Right. And the challenge is that honesty then feels vulnerable. But when you highlight the honesty, you realize that the opposite of being quote unquote vulnerable is being dishonest. Well said. And I don't know anybody who says dishonesty is a value we highlight in our company. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Jerry, I mean, th thank you. Of, uh, as always, thank you for being uh, just a wonderful, wonderful mentor and friend, uh, which started with this podcast and grew toward uh, to having you in the book as well. And and thank you for these conversations. I mean, well, thank you for inviting them. Thank you for the thoughtfulness that you uh, put into it. And thank you for the work that you do. Be well, sir. And until next time. You got it. You be well. Take care. <laughs>